Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, Gaia, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thank you for having me. I must say that I do love your first name. Thank you. Your parents named you so well. Guy is such a beautiful name. When I saw the name, I thought, well, the book's interesting, but the name's great. So let's bring Dr. Bernstein into the show. <laughs> so there's many things we can talk about here. And I love your area of expertise, which is gaining control over addictive technologies, which is the name of your new book as well. So I'm going to start off by asking you, just a very simple question. Do you feel that we are suffering because of our addiction to technology or are we not better off because of technology? You know, the answer is probably yes to both. Uh, technology has advanced our lives in many ways and I'm not, I love technology. That's mm -hmm. why I've spent my career writing about law and technology. Exactly, yes. And... I think the problem is that while with smartphones and the internet, we got so many options we didn't never had before, so many conveniences, so many opportunities to connect. In a way, things have gone too far because we do not, we are so connected. We spend so many hours on our screens. I think if somebody would have come and asked us, you know, in 2009, yeah, uh, when I think we started using smartphones a lot and were basically with our screens on the move, if we would like to spend five hours on our phone, another three hours on our iPad, and then, you know, another five hours on our computer a day, I don't think we would have said yes to that. So I, I think it's not a matter of technology is good or bad. It's a matter of degree and how much of it. Okay. So what you're saying, technology is good, but the way we interact with it can be improved. Right. I think it's about finding a better balance, a better, better online, offline balance. And I, I think the problem lies in the fact that we did not really make this decision to spend so much time on on our screens yes. and it's a huge decision i mean basically this is this is our life do we want to spend so much time on screens or do we want to do something else and it's sort of happened to us in, through many many small decisions of you know just adopting another app or just you know using our cell phone on the go i i remember how it happened to me and around 2009 when I got my first smartphone and I I commuted from Manhattan to my law school in New Jersey. And uh, I thought, okay, so I had have three small kids at home and I can be very effective. I'm going to text babysitters on the way to organize yes. the day. And then I thought, well, actually I can do even better. I'm going to start emailing, answering my emails before I get to work so I can be more effective when I get to work. And then I joined Facebook because I thought many of my colleagues are on Facebook yeah. and it's a great way to get to know them. And before I knew that, I would be sitting in one of these 
train cars and a colleague could be sitting next to me or a student. I wouldn't even see them. I was completely buried in my phone. And as it progressed, everywhere I went, I was buried in my phone or I went to a doctor's office in the waiting room. I'd get my laptop out. And I never, it was just many, many small decisions which accumulated to a life uh, surrounded by screens. And I don't think I'm unique in that way. Who decides how much is too much screen time? How do we know what is too much? Yeah, that is a very good question. I think too much is the same for everyone. But I think it's about being able to make an autonomous decision of what is too much for you. And right now, it's not an individual who is making a decision. It's basically the tech companies whose business model is based on making sure we spend as much time on pos- as possible on our screens. So so that there I guess there are two parts to answer what you're asking. First of all, who is the real decision maker? Why mm-hmm. is are they making this decision? And I think many people are familiar with the business model on the internet. We get so many things for free. We get uh, Gmail for free. We get Facebook for free, Instagram for free. And we pay with our data and our time. So companies collect our data. The goal is to target advertising at us. But in order to get more data, they have to make sure we spend more time online. And once they collect the data, they want to target the advertising. So again, we need to be online for longer. That is the whole revenue model. So tech companies have used many known psychological principles to make sure we spend as much time online as possible. Yes. But is that a bad thing? Isn't that their job to make people want to spend time online? So I think their job is to make sure they get they increase their revenue. Uh, but it does not mean that they should be using um, manipulations which affect people in a harmful way. Uh, yes. You know, cigarette companies' job was to sell cigarettes. It does not mean they should have sold harmful products. So I think that... Tech companies had the advantage of that everything they do is not transparent to us. We don't really see how we're manipulated to spending much more time online. So basically, there's no no one to say this is enough. Until recently, when more more whistleblowers from Silicon Valley have come out and revealed what's going on. But still, when you and I just look at our screens, I mean, with everything I know today, I still too often just sit to work and find myself half an hour later surfing the internet aimlessly, just clicking on Facebook, clicking on Instagram, going on Twitter. I know I don't intend to do that and I I should know better, but I but I am not making everything is stacked against my decision making power. Yes, I can see that. So let's just uh, unpack a couple of things you said, which are very interesting, and I appreciate you for sharing this. Use the example of tobacco companies, right? So you obviously know the subject matter better than I do because it's your area of expertise. So looking 
outside in. Tobacco had nicotine, which was addictive, which was proven to be addictive and obviously caused a whole lot of terrible, horrible health effects. But there's nothing particularly bad about the technology companies that we've identified. In fact, there's an argument to be made, and this argument is just one argument, is that if I, for example, use my phone, and I'm on my phone quite a bit, am I on my phone because Apple makes this great phone, or is it because I love reading the Financial Times app, and I'm actually addicted to the Financial Times, and the technology company is just the medium? Right. So first of all, if all you're doing is reading the Financial Times app, you're quite unique. My guess is that's not the only thing you would be doing on your phone. And so the, the question is what's harmful in what tech companies are doing. That's an area where we've been seeing a lot of evidence coming out. And I think we first of all have to separate the data that's coming out for children from the yes. data about adults. The data about children is quite alarming. And I think it's at this point. Could you share some of the data for the audience? What's alarming about it? I th okay. So for children, there is significant data about scientific data about effect on mental health. And so you can see there's, and it's it's becoming even more specific. For example, there's a lot of data showing that social networks uh, affect, have bad effects, particularly for girls uh, for, on mental health. The There's a lot of data showing that a certain number of kids become addicted even under clinical addiction definition. That's often, more often happens with people who play games. Yes, And on top of that, there is significant data coming out showing that there's an impact on cognitive development, on not just cognitive development for very small kids, but all the way to age 18. And not just psychology studies, but also brain scans showing differences between the brain images of kids who are exposed to a lot of computers, a lot of screen time versus those who are not. And uh, there is um, more information about the effects on sleep, the effect on hyperactivity. There is a lot, the amounts, and I think, you know, at first people said, we don't have, there's not enough data, let us wait and see. And really what we've seen is what I call the science wars, which often happens when a powerful industry comes out with a harmful product. So somebody says this is harmful, and then scientists come up with research. The industry says this is not true. They come up with their own research. And this is and this can go on for years, even with tobacco, which, you know, retroactively, there's no doubt that tobacco is harmful. The first studies came out in the 1950s. It took to 1964 for the Surgeon General to say that uh, smoking is a health hazard. And it took to the 1990s for smokers to start winning litigation and for public spaces to become smoke free. In preparing for the interview, I read a striking statistic which said that many of the tech executives limit the screen time for their own kids, actually. 
they don't allow their kids to have unfettered access to cell phones and technology. They have limited screen time. And I'm not sure why they do that, but it would seem to indicate they think it's not beneficial for their own kids' development. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I'm sure they do this, and I think they know why they're doing it. Uh, but I think they won't be able to uh, win their own their own game because I think once kids you know reach middle school, it doesn't really work to limit their time anymore. So they have created uh, some kind of monster that even they won't be able to compete with. So when you talk about tech companies, yeah, I've noticed that you're referring to the hardware companies. I'm going to use Apple as an example because they do have one of the most famous phones and screens in the world. But you're also referring to the publishing companies because all those statistics you provided, they're driven by the fact that kids are observing certain things on their phones or iPads, for example. And those things they're observing and interacting with is produced by and large, not by the big tech companies, but by publishers. You know, Instagram is owned by a tech company, but things they do and interact with is not necessarily tech companies. There's also publishing houses that put out these things. So when you refer to tech, are you including not just the tech companies, but also what's on the phones? Right. So first of all, I'm talking, I'm definitely talking about the phones themselves, which are made in a way that's as alluring as possible. So pretty. Yeah. And also notifications keep coming up. The default is that uh, everything is bright and shiny and you, you you can't resist it. And on top of that, I, I assume what you call publishing companies, you're talking, I'm not, I'm talking, I guess, not so much about the content. This is a separate issue, what yeah. kids are exposed to specifically, but about the way uh, websites like Instagram or TikTok or, you know, even, even if, even uh, YouTube or Netflix, where they keep showing one video after another, yes. there's no stopping points. So it's not so much about what the kids see, although sometimes it is an issue as well. It's more about the way it's designed for them never to stop being on it. Yes, I see what you mean. So an example of this for the audience is that if you run a YouTube video, it just keeps on showing you more and more videos, I think for hours on end until you go down this rabbit hole. Right. And I, I think actually one of the most uh, shocking examples, I would say, is Snapchat. And I think this really exemplifies what's going on, because basically Snapchat has um, a feature called Snap Streaks. And Snap Streaks is the idea, and kids are much more into this, not adults, that if you send a streak to somebody that day and they return it the same day, you get on this list and you start getting badges so the more days you keep sending these streaks back and forth, the more badges you, you have on your list and you have many people on your list. It's a bit like shows who your friends are. And there's no content in this. The only thing is to get people back on Snapchat. So they'll send something and then they will see the advertising. And so the whole, so I think that's the extreme example of where there's really no content but the idea of getting someone back on the website. And if you miss a day, you miss then the whole, you miss your whole snap streak. You have to start again from zero, which is devastating for kids because they lose their friend charts. Yes, I can see how that can be a problem. Considering I don't have kids, obviously, I'm not someone who's directly exposed to the negative effects. But let's shift gears a little bit here, right? 
Mm-hmm. So I read a very interesting book recently. I forget the name of the book. But he talked about the development of books as a technology. You know, we don't think of a printed book as a technology, but the arrival of movable type, their ability to publish ideas that were considered heresy, put the church up in arms, and people started reading. They became addicted to reading. Publishing companies created ways to make books more addictive. We had the advent of libraries, which made it easier for people to read. Now, that's an example of a new technology that when it arrived, what people said it's going to take down the world because it exposed people to things they hadn't seen before. To some degree, isn't this the same argument we're making about technology? I think this is a great question. That's a question I, I was struggling with as I was writing the book. You know, am I just saying something is wrong here because this is not the technology of my generation, it's the technology of my kids' generation? And I and and actually a, a wise colleague came up to me into my office when I started working on this and told me, you know, Gaia, why why I was thinking about this. Isn't this the same like when people were using these large uh, newspapers and the, reading, reading them on yes. the train and sort of uh, yeah. isolating themselves from everybody else. What's the difference? You're saying people are isolated be- behind screens. Isn't this the same thing? So I think there's still something very, very different here because I don't think we had this um, so much manipulation, so much hidden manipulation, and also and also the fact that this follows us everywhere we go. You know, you would not walk in the in the street reading a a a book. Now you walk in the street with your with your phone. I I walk in the street in New York and I I I use my headphones and I'm listening to something. You know, people talk to me and I'm not really paying attention. Yes. So I and even if we compare it to I would say the TV, the TV got so much criticism, you know, decades before this all this ha- happened. Something is qualitatively different here because at least with the TV, you know, people it's true there are watching tv for many hours but of course you could not take it anywhere but also people call the tv the human bonfire you know everybody was watching the tv at the same time they were watching the same thing here every person can people can be together and that's another effect of the technology which affects adults and children alike basically you can sit in the same room but each person is looking at something else and I think for me, the moment I really realized that it, it sort of struck me was the night that uh, Trump won the election in 2016. And everybody at that point was very surprised. People thought Hillary was going to win. There were lots of people in the living room I was sitting in and the TV was on, but nobody was really looking at the TV. Nobody was talking. Everybody was texting somebody else on their phone or looking for more information on the phone. And nobody's really discussing together what was happening. And I think that was one of the moments that struck me that something is very, very different here. Yeah, that's well said. I can see that. So let's just go back to this argument of it being more manipulative, I think the word is. And I'm not debating that point. I mean, I don't know how tech companies do things. Maybe they are manipulative. But do you not feel that in the older days when you had one editor controlling what is put out in a newspaper, in a sense, that is more manipulative versus being able to go onto your phone and be able to pull up 
a thousand and more viewpoints. And then you get to choose which one you want to follow. Right. Well, I, I think, you know, obviously there's something great about the internet that we have so much information. Yes. Whether we completely choose what we want to see is a different issue. And I think the problem is that, you know, at least before, if you chose one newspaper, you knew what you were choosing. You would choose the New York Times. Uh, if you were more uh, left-wing, you would choose the Wall Street Journal. If you were more right-wing, you, you, you made a choice. You made an yes. autonomous choice of what you were choosing uh, for now, if you go on the internet, I, for example, I go on Facebook, that's my social network of choice, and I see lots of news items which my, which are posted, but basically I do not see the whole uniform of uh, news items. I see the kind of news items that I'm, I'm likely to agree with, that yeah. my friends are likely to agree with, so I'm no longer exposed, and I don't even realize how much I'm not exposed to what everybody else is seeing. So the thing is, that this is part of the manipulation the algorithm you feel that, there's this echo chamber there is this echo chambers and also there is the manipulation is so subtle and so and and i'm, I'm happy to discuss more of how, how the, the techniques which are being used here yeah let's let's discuss them because the best kind of manipulation is usually subtle so let's lay it out there right so basically there are several I would say three main strategies that are used to manipulate uh, us to spend more time online. And there are the, so they're behind many of the features that we see all over the internet. So you would, one is um, that what's called the intermittent reward model. Mm-hmm. The idea that we basically when we get a reward once in a while, not on a regular basis, our brains is more likely to uh, to release dopamine, the pleasure-enhancing neurotransmitter. So this is why slot machines are so successful, because you never know when the coins are yes. going to come through and you keep pulling and pulling. Now, so many features in the internet are designed this way. So whether it's, you know, the likes and the comments you can get on social networks, or even when you pull on your email to see if you got a new email, or you go in Tinder and you, you swipe to see if you got a new match, or, um, and it's basically the, the fact that you always swipe down to see what else has come new, you don't know what's new, but you keep looking. And on games, there are something called loot boxes, which are surprise um, surprise prizes you could get. You don't know what's inside them. Tons and tons of things are based on us getting these dopamine releases. And that's why we keep going back, because it makes us feel good for a minute. So that is one um, a big principle of, of how we, our time is extended. Okay, that makes sense. I can see that happening. I remember reading somewhere that when people get a message, the fact that they got a message is more important than what the content of the message is. That is what releases the dopamine, the fact that they don't know it's going to arrive. But when they see that flashing light, it gets them excited and they become addicted to dopamine. But let's switch gears here, right? Because you make a good case and there's going to be other people who make the counter case. But let's assume that someone in government reads your book and they agree with you 
and they put together a set of legislation that achieves the goals that you're advocating for. So my question here becomes, if the tech companies are competing for our attention, if the TV companies are competing for our attention, if video game companies are competing for our attention, wouldn't we simply be, if we cut down screen time, wouldn't people simply take their attention somewhere else and become addicted to something else? I think if you are assuming that that people, are, and I think there are some writers who believe in that, that there's something inside us that sort of needs to get distracted. Yes. And therefore, we're always going to find something. The thing is, this is so overpowering that, and I, I guess you could say that some people who are likely to always need something because yes. they are more likely to get addicted. They need but a I, void, to, I, they have a void to fill. Right, but the lot, and I, I actually differentiate between addiction and what I call overuse, technology overuse. So I think for the group that is, gets addicted, it's probably what you're saying is correct. But most of us, we are overusing because we, we cannot make a choice and does not mean we're going to go and look to be addicted to something else. We might actually engage in many other activities which are more meaning, meaningful, maybe much more fulfilling for us because we might because there's lots of research also showing that face-to-face -face interaction increases happiness happiness just talking to somebody smiling eye-to-eye -eye contact lots of this is gone now if you just go back to that you are going to get a lot of fulfillment from your day that now people don't get because they're sitting behind screens and don't even go to the office next door and they would rather send an email to somebody who is sitting a few doors from them. Yes, it makes sense. I can see that argument, but I'm going to switch gears a little bit more here. So many years ago, I was talking to these executives who ran these social media companies and so on. And one of the arguments they made is that they had no problem outsourcing technology and so on to China because they never thought the Chinese could build something that understood American psychology to create a product that would be addictive to Americans. Mm -hmm. And then TikTok came along. If we take away the ability for American tech companies to do this and other companies and other countries are allowed to compete down this path, are we not setting us up for a disadvantage? So I think you're absolutely right that this is an international issue. And it, it you know, it sort of works both ways because we're already seeing, actually there's more, and it's not surprising, this often happens with technology. I think in the US, there's a great hesitancy to, you know, to halt innovation, to halt mm -hmm. technology. We sort of admire, we admire technology, we admire innovation, if you look at privacy, privacy regulation happened in Europe and other countries much earlier than the U.S. The U.S. is really lagging behind here. So, so if anything is going to happen, and we can already see actually uh, regulation to uh, for of technology overuse in other countries, uh, loot boxes, which I just mentioned, mm -hmm. which are part of games, are restricted in many European countries. Uh, China, actually, it's very interesting. China is, um, and uh, not just China, which obviously is a totalitarian state, so, but yeah. other uh, southeastern countries are very hard on regu regulating uh, use of uh, games and social media. Uh, Japan and China right now, uh, 
restrict how many hours kids can play games to very, very few hours a week. And I think China also restricts uh, use of social media, the, tic- the Chinese version of TikTok. I think it's now 40 uh, minutes a day. I think it changes all the time. But basically, uh, what we're seeing is not the US, you know, prohibit, you know, restricting technology. We're seeing other countries moving much faster with this. And um, so I and and I think that I think there's something very cultural in this hesitancy not to regulate, not because you know, technology will lead to progress. There's yeah. an assumption that technology will lead to progress. And I think this assumption has to be examined much more carefully. So I was looking at that list of uh, you mentioned a few companies like countries like Japan and the European countries and so on. Is there a case to be made that none of those countries have produced? a major international technology player, while the United States has its open laws and relatively open rules, which has allowed these tech companies to grow and have such a big impact around the world. Is it a case to be made that if we went the route of the European countries, which have largely been unsuccessful at building these tech champions, we could end up like them? You know, I am thinking, first of all, I think you didn't include Japan in your list, right? Well, Japan, Japan is... the last time they've had a tech champion is probably Sony, right? Well, not... they still have brothers, brother printers. Um... But I don't think we're counting brother printers as an addictive technology. Right. Well, oh, lot, okay. But I don't no, think I thought you talking about technologies in general. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, the actually, the, it's interesting because the newest uh, social media uh, that kids are into is called be real it's it's a french uh, company well i'm not a kid so i wouldn't know that but it's good to, what is it called be realist it's called be real and it's interesting because it's hailed as the next thing that's going to to you know stop the addiction i it's it's amazing how tech companies always come with something that's supposed to be the solution. Well, in fact, it's propagating the problem. It's a be real, drug. That, <laughs> yeah. No, the idea of be real is that you can only post once a day when they tell you randomly, of course. Oh, I remember it's, reading about that you have to post once a day and it can't be a filtered photo or something like that. Right. And you, but the thing is, you don't know when this once a day will be happening. Oh, and another dopamine hit. You're just waiting for it. And can you ever leave your phone to have dinner for any moment because you might miss this? And if you miss this and you post late, you're shamed for being po- for posting late. <laughs> so we're shaming kids now. <laughs> that doesn't sound like a good path we want to go down. Right. So, yeah. So yeah, so France has joined this. Actually, even though France is pretty um, restrictive on kids and technology. So what do you think would happen? Where do you think the conversation or the action on this will go? Do you think that nothing will happen or do you think boundaries will be put in place? What would be the the likely versus the ideal outcome here? So first of all, I think a lot is already happening. It's it's important to um, realize that. That we're, the first thing that's already happening is that people are aware of the problem which I don't think people were really aware before about 2017. The whistleblowers who came out, Tristan Harris, Francis Hogan, made yes. this thing a big issue people know about. So that's, that is important. Now, I think that right now people feel very, very powerless. They feel like they mm-hmm. cannot. They've tried self-help methods. 
They've tried restricting their own time. They've tried restricting their own their kids' time, and nothing seems to be working. So what I want to say is that I think that we are moving towards a solution. The thing is, it's not, you know, it's not going to be one big law that's going to solve this. It's not yes. even going to be, you know, one big Supreme Court decision. It's going to be the same as what we saw. There's a lot to be learned from the past, the fights against tobacco, the fights against junk food. It's Which is an ongoing different... fight, by the way. Right, absolutely. But I think the at least the fight against tobacco, if we I mean if you take out um, e-cigarettes, yeah. I think there has been a lot of progress in that er yes. era. So but basically it's going to be a lot of different things happening at the same time. And so and I think it's going to start from children because what technology companies are saying, you know, they're saying they're saying basically what tobacco companies have said and what food companies have said. You know, it's people are choosing to use technology. Uh, it's person. It's people are choosing to smoke. People are choosing to eat at McDonald's. So it's a personal responsibility thing. And so the idea is that this is an argument that breaks when you get to children because people are much more likely to agree for regulation to protect kids because they may not know which are the best choices to make. That's why yeah. kids cannot buy cigarettes under 21 or why schools weigh kids and send the parents the BMI. This could not happen to you when you go to work. Your employer is not going to weigh you. So I think we're starting to see lots of bills to protect children. Eventually, you know, some will go through. Failure is not always failure. It's pressure on technology companies. We're seeing class actions by parents against uh, social media, against game makers. You know, again, litigation for tobacco companies failed for decades. Eventually, it, eventually it went through. So there are many, many ways, and I could continue describing them in which we're already seeing movement taking place. Yes. I always worry that with tobacco companies, there was a smoking gun, right? There was evidence that tobacco, I think, caused cancer or something like that, and the tobacco companies were hiding that information. So I think with the case with tech companies, I wonder if there is a smoking gun out there somewhere that would overwhelmingly convince people and legislators that something needs to change. And right, maybe so there yeah. is, or maybe there's more than one. Yeah, so I, I, I think there is, but I, I think you're absolutely right about the tobacco companies, about the fact that there, some evidence had to come out because really what happened with the, with the tobacco litigation is for decades, smoke has lost because yes. basically the tobacco company said you chose to smoke and you knew it was not good for you at this point, and you kept doing it. And only once the evidence came out that the tobacco companies knew that it was addictive and, 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 and failed to warn, then the litigation changed. And I think this evidence is already out for technology companies. When I started uh, working on this book, 
uh, I was I, I was actually I suspected that technology companies were in charge were at fault here, yes. but there was no evidence. And I think through Tristan Harris, especially Francis Hogan, some other whistleblowers, basically, Francis Hogan came out with all this information that um, Facebook, which owns Instagram, had information about how Instagram is harmful for girls. They had presentations and they decided explicitly not to deal with this. I'll give you my own experience on this, right? Yeah. So about five months ago, I made a decision that I need to change my life. And one of the things I did is I severely limited my technology use. And I wouldn't say I stopped using my iPad and iPhone. Actually, I use more of it, but the way I used it changed. So one mm -hmm. of the things I did is I unsubscribed from a lot of updates I was getting via email. So mm -hmm. I decided there were certain voices I don't want in my life. The other thing is I stopped answering my phone, which is one of the best things in the world you can do, actually. <laughs> so people call if it's important enough, they'll send me a message. If it's not important enough, then they just don't send me a message. And what I notice is there is a significant improvement in your mental health if you take control over the voices you allow into your life. And I say voices, I also mean publishing companies, platforms, and so on. It changes your health. I can see the logic of what you're saying, but I wonder if other people will be able to get it and do something about it. So I think what you're suggesting, I don't know if you read Carl Newport's book, he's suggesting a similar system. He basically suggests 30 days of detox completely Unplanned. and then choosing what apps you want to let back into your life. I only now use the Guardian app, Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, and Apple News all set to business settings. Pretty much everything else I don't follow up on. Yeah, so I think what you've done is admirable. I think people find it very, very difficult to do. And the younger you are, the more difficult it is for you to yes. do it because more of your social life is on social media. So I so I, I think it's the problem. And I, I'll say, the problem is actually the existence of these suggestions, you know, tech companies came up with all these digital well-being tools yes. that maybe you could, you know, create focus time on your phone or you could limit or get information for how much you're using your phone. But the fact that people can do this and do not succeed, and most of them don't succeed like you have, most of us, I can say us because I haven't either, basically makes people feel worse because they, they keep blaming themselves. They feel something is wrong with them. Yes. And and I think what I'm trying to say is that we should stop blaming ourselves and realize that the blame is elsewhere. And we, I mean, yes, you can improve your way. You can improve things in small ways, but you cannot really solve the problem unless there's a systemic change here. Yeah, I think it's also a cultural thing because it's one thing to say you and I, we want to take back control of our lives. But if we've got managers and bosses who are insisting that we're available 24 hours a day and we're having to check our email on weekends, it's very hard for us to make the changes we want when we don't really have that much control over the decisions we are making. I think it needs to be a societal shift whereby we acknowledge that people need to have more time to themselves to think, regenerate, recuperate, and all those wonderful things. But I think as a society, we're still getting there. I think COVID 
made us realize the importance of mental health and well-being, but I wonder if we will continue down that path. Right. So I, I think there's several important things you said. I think the idea of, you know, I agree that employers expecting you to see your emails at any hour of the day contributes to that. But I, I think it's, and, and yes, a change here would be good. The thing is, it's, it's yeah. So it, and the, the problem is if you constantly expect to check your emails, once you get in your phone, it's not just the emails, because once you check your emails, you can see everything else. And you yes. spend much more time on your phone than you intended. So I think while this could be some kind of solution, I'm not. It's not going to to solve the whole problem. The big problem is the lack of intentionality. So maybe yes. I will check my emails because I know I'm supposed to. But then, why did I just spend so much time on Facebook after that, which I did not intend to when I picked up my phone? It's what you say. It's a combination of things. Society needs to change, but we also need to take control of our decisions. We cannot pass the buck as such. Right. And, and you know, it's also, as parents, it's very difficult not to look at your phone all the time because your kids are out there and people expect you to, to be on your phone and you can't just leave. If, I, if, I'm, if my kids are not all with me in the house, I, I will always have my phone with me. The only time when I relax completely is I see all three of them here, and then I know I don't have to check. So what I'm hearing is that kids are part of the drivers of technology addiction. Kids are part of the driver and also societal norms that everybody expects you. The schools expect you, the babysitters, the after schools, everybody expects you to be available and, you'll I mean, be, when and I was, they'll tell you you're a bad mom if you're not available, right? Right. And also, there's there's no... I remember being, you know, when I was a kid, and if I would get sick, there was no answering machine even at home. So yes. if I was sick, the school had to keep me. In my kid's school, I remember one time that they ran out of water, like, an hour before the end of after school. And what they did was call all the parents to pick up early. I was out of country and I had to make sure somebody went to pick up my kids but they they did not deal with the fact that they maybe could have kept the kids for an hour yeah it's a difficult thing because as you're pointing out is that you can have the best intent to control your screen time but there's so many things you don't have control over and there's so many things you're going to be judged for if you're not available Right. So it's a combination, I think. I think I think it's a combination of social norms, but also importantly, combination of the fact that once you have once you are pick up your phone, whether you are concerned that you missed something or you're supposed to be on something, you're going to spend much, much more time than the one minute you could have spent just checking to see if everything is okay. Yes. You know, it's difficult for people who don't have kids to understand this, but it's a safety issue, right? You don't know if your kids are safe if you don't pick up and respond. So it's not as if you can just say, well, I'm not going to do it. There are so many barriers here that prevent you from doing what you want to do. Right. Kaya, thank you so much for this enlightening conversation. Is there anything you want to add before we wrap up? So I think um, the main thing I want to add is I think there is hope or change, and I think it's important for people to realize that they, there's a lot they could do on an individual basis, because a lot is happening. For example, 
schools. Schools make choices about how much technology they incorporate into the classroom. That's done on a school by school basis and classroom by classroom basis. That's a place where parents can act and and intervene. I think my main message is people should not feel powerless like this is over, but think that there are many ways in which they could be active and creating change. And it's not necessarily only, you know, deleting all the apps from their phones. You know, I think you're right about that. I remember one of the things I did is that, you know, there's two ways to handle emails. One is to ignore emails. Well, the other one is limit the number of emails you get. So I would tell people in my company that don't write to me unless there's something that only I can solve. If you write to me about something that I'm not the best person to solve, I'm not even going to respond to your email. You are hired to deal with this. So there's a lot of things we can do to limit the amount of time we spend on our screens versus simply ignoring things. I think people need to think about how do they almost redesign their lives because there's a part of that as opposed to saying, I'm just going to stop. It's hard to just stop everything because people think you disappeared, but you've got to educate everyone in your life about how you're going to be managing your screen time so they know how to respect your time. I think people need to, as you say, take control, but it has to be a purposeful process. And in my case, it took a few months to set up, but it's a very good process. And it's going to take years for this issue to be resolved, like all these other big issues we've discussed, tobacco, the food. So in the meantime, people have to do with what options they have. Yes. The food thing is a really good example because it always surprises me how unhealthy food is put on the shelves of American supermarkets. There's people worrying about this, but I can't believe it's still going on. Right. And uh, I think the food battles are in in the midst. I mean, it's... The, the fight against obesity, the fight against junk food, and against the manipulation. It's very difficult, no matter how educated you are, to read the label and really get whether this this bar or anything else is really good for you to eat. Yeah, you know, when I think about this, I think it comes back to our educational system and our MBA programs. Why are we creating executives that think it's okay to sell food that kills people? It should be a moral choice that we don't do that. It's not that we stop doing things because we're going to be penalized for it. We don't do it because it's bad for our fellow human beings. Right. But it's very similar to the technology. Why why are they selling food that's bad for people? Because that's food is addictive. People eat more of it. It's empty calories. They just keep eating and eating. More sugar, more salt. And it's the same with the tech. You know, they want users to consume more and more of it. I think it all goes back to increasing revenues by manipulations of or consumers or in technology users. I've never understood why the term users is used for technology. Is it some kind of illusion of empowerment <laughs> we are using and we're yeah. in control? Yeah, to me, it's always surprising because if you're producing food that's going to kill the people that give you money, that can't be a long-term good strategy for you. Well, it kills them slowly. Kills them slow. <laughs> slow enough for some of these executives. But it's the same thing with technology, right? If you are producing technology and you have prompts and you have certain attributes you're building into your platform and your media that is making people depressed, I don't see how that can be a long-term good strategy for any business. But I think executives are too short-term focused. They want to make money, cash out, and let someone else deal with the problem. Right. The thing is that people don't 
realize that they're depressed and also they feel that what makes them feel better is getting this new notification so they keep looking because then they get the dopamine release so it's a never-ending circle so i think for you and me we should start a dopamine distribution company people (laughs) can buy the dopamine from us they don't have to get it from social media i think we've we've hit on a very big idea here yeah that would be great (laughs) dopamine shots around the world gaia thank you so much i think that what you're saying is very true Hopefully more people take control of their lives. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great day. Ciao. Bye. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.